Hello and welcome back to Ear Read This for the second part of our uh, Pickwick Bonanza. We are now going to talk about Death and Mr. Pickwick by Stephen Jarvis. I'm Ash. I'm Adam. And we are very lucky to be joined by the author himself, Stephen Jarvis. Hi, Stephen. Hello there. So we've heard the received history of the composition of Pickwick Papers. Now we're going to jump into the theory um, held by Death and Mr. Pickwick, namely that Charles Dickens stole the ideas of Robert Seymour. How did you start researching Robert Seymour? Well, (laughs) the first thing to say is that uh, Seymour is a bit of a shadowy figure. Mm. Um, There was a lot of evidence about him which mysteriously vanished in Mm. 1928. And I spent a lot of time trying to find that. It was like the holy grail of my research. So, uh, But I didn't manage to find it. But uh, I started looking into his life and finding out as much as I, as I could about him. And uh, eventually I produced uh, Mr. Pickwick. So what, 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 what in particular disappeared in 1928? It, well, it was, uh, there was this massive uh, biography, uh, unpublished. It was called The Life of Robert Seymour. And it was written by a man who knew Seymour's son. Mm. And it just vanished and, you know, I strongly suspect that it was deliberately suppressed. Um, but, you know, I, I spent, I would say, about a year looking for it. And in the end, I had to say, no, I'm not going to find it. Mm. Uh, so there you go. It, it's, I still hope one day it might turn up. But it's, it's... until it does, I, I did my best. Uh, you know, I used the scraps of information I could about Seymour uh, to construct a, a character for him. Mm. This, this, this biography, is it like other sort of ghost sources where there are sort of references around to it, but the actual core of it went missing? No, it, it, the, whole th- it, the whole thing went missing. It was, it was very strange uh, what happened. Um, it was put up for sale uh, at Sotheby's in 1919, and apparently a very high reserve price was attached to it. That's really um, interesting. And there are indications, that, you know, that... Uh, there could have been some sort of really meaty thing in it. Uh, and then it sort of went underground. And then uh, some things uh, that were put up the sale with it emerged. And among these was a letter. I've seen this. And it was addressed to someone identified only as Dear Sir. <laughs> and this Dear Sir is the person who presumably acquired this. That's and, uh, you know, I, I've long suspected that it was deliberately suppressed. I even have, a, I even have my suspicions as to, who, as to who did it. But, oh. you know, uh, there came a point where I had to say, I'm not going to find it. It may, may no longer survive. But, uh, you know, my, my wife, uh, you know, I, uh, I would tell her, well, I'm going to try this to find it now. But I, she, she just rolled her eyes. <laughs> uh, and I just, I just had to say, no, it's, it's gone missing. So I did my best with, with the material that was available. That's a hell of a story in itself, though. I have to, I have to ask, are you prepared to, to say who you think got it? Uh, well, I, the person who I think, uh, this, is, uh, this is my suspicion. Uh, there was a man called William Miller uh, in the 1920s who was, uh, you know, he was a huge collector and Pickwick was uh, the centre of his collecting interests. And the interesting thing is that um, in the Second World War, he fled to America, taking part of his collection with him. And the rest of his collection, some of it was put up for sale, and some of it was hidden 
in various secret caches around the UK. <laughs> now, where these caches are, no one knows. Uh, but uh, so it might turn up one day. But here's my like uh, you know, main smoking gun. Uh, and you never know; it might turn up. It, could, it would uh, it would send shockwaves if it if it did. Yeah. It's, it's well, absolutely. To I mean, this is why, as I say, I spent I spent so much time trying to find it. Yeah. Uh, but in the end, you have to say, well, it, it's gone missing. It may have been destroyed, of course. Yeah. If there were things in it that people didn't want others to hear about, there's a motive for destroying it. Absolutely. Well, and what what remaining sources were there left that you worked on this? Well, this there were there were sort of. There were little scraps, you know. I mean, um, for instance, I, there are indications that Seymour was gay. Okay. Um, so in the novel, I actually make him gay. Um, there are indications that he, um, w- at one point, was interested in becoming a priest. And then, of course, you get the drawings that he worked on. Uh, what sort of... What does what do these what clues do they give about his personality? Mm-hmm. And also, the other thing that I did was that um, Seymour was essentially a manic depressive uh, character. Yeah. So what I tried to do, I, I I I said to myself, is there a modern day manic depressive cartoonist I could research and then use aspects of his personality and apply them to Seymour? And I did in fact uh, uh, find one. There was a cartoonist called Jed Melling who was Mount Depressive, and he, he died, I think it was about 10 or so years ago, but I traced his son, and I had a very long conversation with his son, and he gave me all sorts of insights, which I applied to the character of Seymour. So even though I didn't find this missing material, mm-hmm. I found other ways of trying to construct a character for Seymour. Yeah. So could you give us a, a, a brief biography of, of Robert Seymour before he met Dickens? Yeah, sure. Well, he was he was born in 1798. Uh, no one knows his exact date of birth. Um, he his father actually died before he was born. Um, then he uh, he was apprenticed to a pattern designer. This mm. is someone who would design patterns for for cloth. Mm. And uh, then he broke away from that. He tried to become, you know, like a really successful painter, first of all, uh, you know, and there was, uh, he, in fact, some people said that he might have become president of the Royal Academy. Mm. But then he, uh, he had a picture that was turned down by, by the Royal Academy. And it seems that at that point, he decided to become um, a cartoonist and, and a book illustrator. And he went on to become the most prolific cartoonist of his day. Mm. I mean, phenomenal output, thousands of pictures. No one actually knows fully how many pictures he did. Mm. But I mean, if you can go to like, there's a, there's a catalogue of, uh, of political uh, caricatures in the British Library, mm-hmm. and it lists mm-hmm. page after page by Seymour. It's like twice as many as his nearest rival. Mm. So this man was, was like a, a, a drawing machine. And this, and, this, and this, this was at a time where cartoons and satirical political cartoons were most people's only access into how the politics of their day worked. Well, that's, that's absolutely true. And of course, uh, you know, he was active in a period, for instance, with the, uh, with the Great Reform Bill. So this is a, a major time of political change and turmoil in, in Britain. And, uh, you know, he, he was the leading political 
cartoonist of his day. Uh-huh. I mean, one of the things that annoys me is that people sometimes say, oh, this man was a sporting artist, mm. but he wasn't. Uh, this, is, in fact, is a distortion which you find in a lot of Dickensian works. Yeah. He did do sporting pictures, but it was a comparatively minor part of his output. Uh-huh. Mainly, he was a, a political cartoonist, and in terms of output, I mean, his output rivaled in a visual sense Dickens's massive output of words. Hmm, well, in, I, I... in every single uh, reference to, to Seymour in biographies of Dickens or in editions of Pickwick Papers, there's always the line, Robert Seymour was um, an accomplished uh, sportsman illustrator and that was his main interest and well this is completely wrong yeah, you see. this yeah. is just one of these distortions uh which are, which is repeated endlessly I and mean, it's it's just not true is, is, is the point of this distortion you think then to give the impression that dickens gave seymour his success Yes, I think that there is a reason for, uh, for, for the distortion. Mm-hmm. You see, the, um, Dickens really min- tried to minimise what Seymour did in the Pickwick Papers. He basically said he did almost nothing, mm-hmm. and that, uh, that Seymour had this idea for some Cockney sportsman, and, and Dickens said that uh, he inserted the character of Mr Winkle, who, who's the bogus sportsman in the Pickwick Papers, yeah. for Mr Seymour, so, of course, if you say that Seymour was a sporting artist, you're sort of providing like the background to confirm what Dickens is saying, but mm-hmm. it simply isn't true. This man was, was as I say, a major political car- cartoonist. Uh, you know, it's, um, the man was, was sort of touched with genius. I mean, it was, uh, as I say, this was, this was a, a very political time, uh, and to, to describe him as a sporting artist is really a travesty. It's, 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 it's a diminishment. It is, yeah, and I think it's motivated, as I said. Mm. Can we can we talk about some of the things he did illustrate that that weren't uh, that weren't uh, sportsmen? Because there are some f- fantastically varied stuff. He did a he published a collection of illustrations from Shakespeare and the English poets. Is that right? Were they yeah, together? Yeah, that's right. I mean, his. Um, he, he had this uh, humorous take on, on Shakespeare. He would take a line from Shakespeare and then he, or, or a title of a Shakespearean play, and then he would twist it in a humorous way. So, for instance, you know, you might take a Midsummer Night's Dream and he would show this horrific dream of someone, I think, I think it's with uh, like a hook through their stomach or something like that, a real horror story. And he did this, this again and again. Uh, and these are very fine pieces. Another thing, he, he worked on this publication called Figaro in London, mm. which was like a forerunner to punch. Uh, oh, and, really? you know, major political thing. Um, there was also a, a work called The, the Looking Glass, uh, which was, uh, you know, it, it was like a, a, a very early comic book. He didn't do the first few issues, but then he took over, and it, re- it really took off. Would, uh, would so uh, a, a big artist, I mean... You know, it, it's and as I say, he, he before he did the cartoons, he also tried to be a, an important painter. Mm. So this is a man who had, who was a significant artist of his time, and, and it really is terrible that people just describe him as a sporting yeah. artist. So yeah. we, we mentioned in the last episode that this was a time when there weren't many recognisable figures in the same way that we have a sort of celebrity culture. Would would people have known his name? 
Oh, I think they would have known his name, yeah. I mean, although having said that, there were movements for people to be, uh, for artists to be anonymous. This is actually something that I put across in, in, um, in Death of Mr. Pitwick. This Looking Glass magazine, he appeared as, as the illustrator on it, but then the publisher clamped down and he made Seymour do it anonymously, so the publisher got all the credit. Hmm. And also another thing is that uh, quite a few of Seymour's pictures are unsigned, which, is, uh, which actually is, is very annoying. Uh, <laughs> on, um, in one picture in particular, there was a, a picture of a man who is significant in the, the creation of, of Sam Weller. He may indeed be the original Sam Weller. And it may well be by Seymour. There are indications that it could be, but it's not signed. So I cannot <laughs> say 100%. But, you know, he was certainly, he was certainly known. Uh, he got an obituary in the Times. You know, people said that he is, he is the up-and-coming artist. Uh, and you just had to look at his productivity. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so, yeah, he, he was known. He was more famous than Dickens. When I was going to ask, so he, he was the bigger star before... He was, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, can I just ask as well, there's, the, there's a, a very surprising cameo in Death of Mr. Pickwick of um, The Wrong Trousers. The um, well, album right. animation. <laughs> well, so this, he... is, this is, you see, uh, I should explain that part of Death of Mr. Pickwick is set in modern times. And yeah. the people, uh, you know, the people I'm sure will know the Wallace and Gromit thing of the wrong trousers, where a man has these, uh, these sort of um, uh, steam powder or uh, walking trousers, as it were. Mm-hmm. And there's a drawing that Seymour did, which is very much like the wrong trousers. And in fact, it is thought to be the world's first drawing of a mechanical exoskeleton. So this <laughs> wow. is like the ultimate ancestor of things like Iron Man, yeah. you know? <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's uh, when I when I saw this Seymour this picture by Seymour, it did definitely remind me of of the wrong trousers. Robert Robert Seymour, father of Robocop. <laughs> <laughs> well, absolutely. <laughs> and um, and uh, we're an Edinburgh based podcast, so I'd be remiss to um, not mention he also did drawings of Burke and Hare. Is that right? That's right. Yes, wow. uh, I think he may well be the first artist to have done drawings about Burke and Hare. See, again, this shows how versatile he was. Yeah, so well, how did he get involved pictures, in that? But he could do hor- horrific pictures yeah. as well. What was, yeah. what, what, what was his involvement? Why? Because if he was, a, if he, if he was based down in England, what drew his attention north? Um, there was a man he met who was con- uh, uh, actually a member of parliament who was concerned with uh, anatomy. I mean, uh, the background, I'm sure, sure you know, it was that people were stealing corpses to give mm. them to medical students. Because and the, there, was yeah, there, was, there were, there were there more was medical students than met who yeah. was concerned with the legal uh, campaign. And oh. this may well have something to do with Seymour's involvement with, uh, with, with Burke and Hare and drawing them. But, but again, this is a bit shadowy. Oh. If, if I had this lost material, I'm sure I could give a better answer. <laughs> um, could, you, could you describe for us his actual, the, his, the actual process of his etchings? You mean how you actually do an etching? Yeah. Well, this is something that I had to really research, uh, you know, uh, for Death of Mr. Pitwick. The idea of an etching is that you take a steel or a copper plate and then you melt wax on it. So you've got like a wax-covered plate. And then you scratch away your drawing into the wax. So you get like a series of grooves in wax. And then what you do, you pour acid onto this plate, and the acid goes through the, the grooves that you've cut in, in the wax, 
and it reaches the metal plate and, and actually makes grooves in that. Wow. And then when it's all finished, you can use the metal plate for printing. But this is actually a very difficult thing to do. Totally. And it takes a hell of a lot of practice and all sorts of things can go wrong. I mean, for instance, you can, you can leave the, the, the plate too long in the acid and ruin it. Yeah. So it's a very skillful thing. And Seymour, I mean, he was a master of it, <laughs> and, you know, and he was just so fast. Uh, so, yeah, um, he was, this is actually, I mean, uh, we mentioned in the last episode this, this, this man, Bus, uh, who briefly took over from Seymour after Seymour's suicide as the Pickwick illustrator. He had no experience of etching, hmm. and he was persuaded to, to give it a go, <laughs> and he failed. He did his best, but they weren't up to Seymour's standards. I was going to say, and, they don't, they're not as memorable as, as Seymour's, but to say that he didn't know how to do what you've just described, they're, they're, they're pretty, pretty impressive. Good, yeah. Well, you know, he, he did his best. Yeah. You know, that, that's, that's, that's all you can say. If he'd had another month, he probably would have been fine, mm-hmm. um, but but he didn't, and, and then the publishers Chapman Hall fired him. Yeah, would so is is, is th- that work that process you just described there? Is that a one person job, or would he have had a, a team? No, it's it's a, it's a one person job. Okay. Alternatively, you could probably find someone to do etching for you. That that could happen. Uh-huh. You see, the thing is that etching didn't have much status. It was regarded as a sort of a mechanical process. Mm-hmm. The thing that had its status was the similar art of engraving. Mm-hmm. Now, in that, you actually take like a stylus and you scratch away at the metal itself. I mean, that also takes years of practice. Uh, but, but basically, not many artists did etching. It was regarded as, as the sort of thing that, that people might do as a hobby, this, mm-hmm. this sort of thing. Uh, but Seymour, Seymour was obviously very good at it. Uh, and, you know, many examples of etchings he produced. Did, did Blake do, sorry to veer away a little bit, but did Blake do um, etching or was that more engraving? I'm or not certain yeah. about Blake, to be honest. I, yeah. I, 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 I could give you an, uh, the wrong answer. I suspect he did, but mm-hmm. I, I, I'm, I'm not 100% sure. Mm-hmm. I do very briefly mention Blake in Death of Mr. Pickwick because uh, one of the artists uh, who, well, the artist who eventually took over from, from uh, Robert Buss, uh, Hablo Brown, he, he admired Blake, but I, I wouldn't like to say for sure. Just, uh, yeah, I, uh, I mean, you know, apart from etching and engraving, there's also woodcutting, which was another yeah. way of reproducing pictures. Now, with this, the artists tended not to do this themselves. They would hand it over to a professional woodcutter who would, cut, who would, you know, scratch away at wood and so on. But with this, a lot of pictures were sort of spoilt by woodcutters who weren't very good. Mm. Um, you know, Seymour actually complained about, uh, about woodcutters all, all the time. Yeah. And I've seen some of his pictures that really are pretty bad. They've been ruined by woodcutters. No, that's the da- Damien Hirst method. Hand, hand it off to <laughs> hand it off to someone else. Um, so we've heard that Bus and w- was um, Brown. Brown was the one who went by Fizz. Is that right? Yes, he, yeah. he adopted the pseudonym of of Fizz. Um, originally, he chose for one issue of Pickwick. He chose another pseudonym. He, he called he called himself Nemo, but hmm. then he became <laughs> Fizz. Which is uh, probably you know uh, physiognomy. Maybe that's where where it comes mm-hmm. from. And he became known as the Dickens artist, and he worked with Dickens for for many years. 
until eventually there was a there was a falling out, and uh, you know the went his separate way. But he was certainly the the the, the most successful uh, artist, Dickensian artist. And there were were there any more significant competitors or peers to Seymour? Whilst, well, obviously, whilst he was alive. Well, yes. I mean, uh, there was uh, George Cruikshank. Yeah. Cruikshank was regarded as sort of the previous star, of a uh, star cartoonist. Uh, but Seymour was like the rising star. And I mean, there was, there was this, uh, I, I remember coming across this very significant passage where it said that uh, Seymour was sort of beating Cruikshank out of the field or something like that. <laughs> so obviously he was the one, he was the rising star taking over from the, from the older Cruikshank. But Cruikshank was a great artist. I mean, I'm not going to deny that. And then also there was Cruikshank's brother, Robert Cruikshank. Uh, he was a, another good artist, though not as good as, as his brother. But, I mean, you also have to look at the artists that influenced uh, Seymour. Um, and the two names that always come up are James Gilray and Thomas Rowlandson. Mm, yeah. uh, you know, they were, they're generally regarded as the two greatest artists of, of this period. And then you'd probably add Cruikshank and then Seymour after, something like that. And Seymour had a, a nickname, at least for a while, of, of his own, Shortshank. Yeah, this is very interesting. Mm. Um, because Shortshanks, um, if you remember, I said that uh, I, I suspected that Seymour was gay. Yeah. And I think that this, this, this uh, Shortshanks is a clue to that. Um, you see, um, Shortshanks uh, makes you think of Longshanks, Edward yeah. the First, the Hammer of the mm -hmm. Scots. Yeah. Uh, so if Longshanks was was the was the king, then his son, who became Edward the Second, you might say, well, he's a smaller man; he's the son, so he's Shortshanks. But the thing about Edward the Second is that he is probably the most most famous gay man in in British history. Mm. Uh, you know, so I think there was a, a big clue here that Seymour was kind of flagging up the fact that he that he was gay, and it was actually a very good disguise because it also it sounds a bit like Crookshank. Yeah, mm -hmm. you know. So I I think it was a mask that Seymour was wearing. You see, the thing you have to understand is that the print shops uh, were actually gay pickup places. Uh, in the, the early 19th century. Uh, I mean, homosexuality w was a capital offence. Mm. Um, so people were not going to be open about it, but obviously it went on. And I, as I say, I strongly suspect that Seymour was gay. Yeah. Uh, to move on to the sort of origin of um, Pickwick, there's a there's a there's another cart uh, cartoon character that crops up in Death and Mr. Pickwick, Dr. Syntax. What's the background with him well the, uh, he's a very significant uh, character um he was created by thomas rowlandson and he is generally regarded as the world's first cartoon character and by that i mean someone who is recognizable and who has um, a series of different adventures so you can place him in different contexts mm -hmm. uh, and you know so he is if you like the ultimate ancestor of every cartoon character there is you know Popeye the Superman whoever there um, there weren't many other cartoon characters after Dr. Syntax until you get to Mr. Pickwick in between the two there was there were some other characters from a publication called Life in London 
But these are the three significant breakthroughs as far as a caricature, cartoon characters are concerned. Mm. And the point is that Dr. Syntax appeared in poetry. Mm. The characters in Life in London, it was a sort of novel, but not really. It was a bit too loose to be considered a novel. But then with Pickwick, you get the coming together of, you know, a, a very lengthy prose text and a cartoon character. So this is the real breakthrough of, of Pickwick. He was the first visual character connected with a novel. So along with everything else, he, he, he was the, um, the first precursor to a graphic novel too. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, but I mean, you know, you have to take into account uh, both Life in London and Dr. Syntax. I mean, Dr. Syntax has quite a lot in common with Mr. Pickwick in the sense that he travels around just like Mr. Pickwick and he takes notes just like M- Mr. Pickwick. The main difference is that he is thin, whereas yeah. Mr. Pickwick <laughs> is fat. Yeah, uh, and the characters in Life in London they are probably not quite as visually uh, as easily recognisable, but they're kind of I suppose like uh, Jack the Lad kind of figures, and they move around London. Uh, you know, they do a lot of drinking, they get involved with all sorts of scrapes. Hmm. Uh, so these are the three works, and both Doctor Syntax and Life in London can be seen as forerunners to Pickwick. Hmm. But everything comes together when you get this cartoon character, Mr. Pickwick, attached to a novel. And this is incredibly important. It made Mr. Pickwick seem real, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm sure this is one of the reasons why Pickwick was such a huge success. To go on to the, 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 the premise of Death and Mr. Pickwick itself, could I um, state the, the, the case according to Dickens to, um, right, yeah. to, to, to uh, prompt, the, uh, prompt your rebuttal? He... The, the the claim in um, editions of Pickwick and in every Dickens biography I've I've come across is that he met Robert Seymour once. Yeah. Um, is that is that the case? I don't think so. I think they met twice. Yeah. Mm. And uh, there are a couple of good reasons for this. The first is that Mrs. Seymour said they met twice. Uh, also, I find it difficult to believe that they could have collaborated without a meeting. Yeah. And I discussed this uh, in Death of Mr. Pickwick. And the other thing is that Dickens's account of the origins of Pickwick cannot be true. There are fundamental contradictions in it. So you've got this man who's saying that he met Seymour only once. He said he never saw Seymour's handwriting. There was no communication and like I'm saying here, you've got Seymour's wife saying, no, this is wrong. They met more than once. Yeah. And I had to say, I believe Mrs. Seymour. It's that, you know, there are too many contradictions in Dickens' account to take it seriously. So the book is, makes the case for, for a series of um, origins within, uh, origins for stories, origins for characters uh, within the Pickwick Papers mm-hmm. that, um, that uh, Robert Seymour has. Um, how on earth do you, did you start this this research? <laughs> well, um, well, first of all, I should tell you what the research was. Yeah. More, uh, it, it used to be said that more had been written about Pickwick than any other work of fiction, and I can believe it because it's literally hundreds of academic books and articles. And if you if you supplement that with things like newspaper articles you are dealing with thousands of commentaries on Pickwick. Mm. And I made the decision I had to read all of this. 
but then also uh, things started to emerge that weren't that I could see that there's something wrong with the with the traditional account of Pickwick's origin. Um, I mean, I think probably the best way of, of, of demonstrating this is the fact that um, the publisher of Pickwick, uh, Edward Chapman, he said that he came up with the visual image of Mr. Pickwick. It wasn't Robert Seymour, he said. He said that Robert Seymour came up with a thin version of the character. Mm. And Chapman said he insisted on a fat person. And he said that he, that he instructed uh, Seymour to base the image of Mr. Pickwick on a friend of his, a man called John Foster, who, uh, who lived in Richmond. So I heard this, and uh, I went in search of this, uh, this John Foster of Richmond, <laughs> and I couldn't find any evidence that he had ever existed. Uh, I mean, it was extraordinary. I kept on thinking, why can't I find evidence of this man? And you, you have to also realize that Mr. Pickwick was so famous. Uh, I mean, re- literally the most famous face in the world, if you count a cartoon figure as having a face. The man who was his model would have been very famous too. I mean, everyone would have wanted to buy him a drink, and I couldn't find a scrap of evidence for this man's existence. And I suddenly start to think, I wonder whether they made this up to take credit away from Seymour. And I've actually subsequently found, uh, this is actually after Death of Mr. Pickwick uh, was published, someone pointed out to me uh, a similar case of someone inventing someone for, for various re- reasons. And I suspect this might have happened quite a lot before there was the official census, because mm. no one could really check. It you know, and, and, so, but I, I am convinced that this, this was a straight lie to take away credit uh, from, from uh, Robert Seymour. In fact, one unusual thing, funny thing, when I was doing this research, um, I, I, was tro- I was looking through wills, and I came across this reference to a will, a man called John Foster, right historical period of Richmond. And I thought, I've got it. I've found him. But then I, I went into the will, and it actually was a John Foster, not of Richmond in England, but of Richmond, Virginia, USA, <laughs> who had his will probated in England. So there was absolutely not a scrap of evidence that this man existed. So you really have scoured, scoured the world for I've John I've done Foster's. my best. I mean, you can never 100% prove it, but I come back to the fact that Mr. Pickwick was so famous, if there was a lookalike, he would have been noted. Someone yes. would have made a note in a diary. Yeah. You know, you would have got to essentially uh, coach trips to see the original of Mr. Pickwick. <laughs> and there's no evidence of this at all. So I think this is a straightforward lie. And it's one of a number of lies that were told about the origins of Pickwick. So you mentioned, I, th- I think it was in the last episode, you mentioned that there's a modern day uh, portion of Death and Mr. Pickwick. And they feature your narrator, Scripsy and yeah. his uh, mentor, Mr. Imbelicate. Could yeah. you tell us a little bit about how they came to be and, and why, yeah, why um, you chose to have that modern... Uh, yeah, well, what, what happened was... Um, I wasn't really sure to begin with how I was going to link all this material together. Uh, and I was in the, the Dickens Museum, and I was going through a lot of their scrapbooks, you know, reading newspaper cuttings. And there was a newspaper cutting which, which was about a first edition Pickwick, 
And it was about how there was a misprint or a couple of misprints in this edition. And it was um, the, the word inscription was misprinted as inscriptino. <laughs> and the word indelicate was misprinted as indelicate. Mm. And there was just something about this. And I thought, well, that's in- I don't know why, but I just thought, I'm going to make a note of this. And this evolved into the idea of having uh, two people, sort of like literary detectives, kind of exploring the origins of of uh, of the Pickwick Papers, and the one called Inscriptino, he gets shortened to Scripty in the book, um, but Mister Inbelicate is there, and I suppose also there are certain things which influenced me uh, to come up with this kind of arrangement with these people discussing it. I mean, one thing was um, I don't know whether you know the the, the TV series The Prisoner from the sixties. Oh yes. yeah, who is yeah, well, number one? Like there always used to be these dialogues between the character of number six and the character of number two, and there was there was something that was always mysterious. Not everything was fully explained, and I wanted that kind of thing in in Death of Mister Pickwick. I, I do give insights, uh, particularly towards the end, about who Mister Inbelicate in particular is. Uh, but I don't fully explain it, you know, because I think that an element of mystery is is mm. is interesting. Mm. And and the characters of of Scripty, well, I suppose there are bits and pieces of me in that. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I it's it's not a hundred percent me, but quite a lot. I mean, there's a bit where um, uh, Scripty refers to the death of his mother, and it's it's basically the way that my mother died as well. And there are, there are one or two other bits and pieces like that. So that that's really how it, how it came together, and I should say that it it was only really quite uh, really near the end of the book that I decided upon this approach of having these people in modern times discussing the period papers. Mm. Um, you know, it's probably probably in the last year, six months, I came with my writing, I came up with this, and you know, I I just thought, yeah, that's that's the way that, that I'll do it, and uh, and I stuck with it. Well, as a as, as a meta narrative device, I found it really effective as a way to filter through the Pickwick stuff. Well, thank you. When did you decide, or, or was it a decision at all, that, that it was going to be a novel? Because it, it, it could well be, I mean, you could even argue that it, it often is um, a work of non-fiction. Well, I think I, I, right at the start, actually, a novel, I just thought that Pickwick, when I, when I discovered just how... Well, I mean, if you go back to that buzz about that I had when I first heard about Robert Seymour, mm. I just sort of got the feeling that, that this shouldn't just be a, a, like a work of non-fiction. I thought that there, there was something bigger here. I sometimes say that the Pickwick de- deserved more than a work of non-fiction. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, what I should say is that. Originally, I, I was going to just write the book about Seymour. I thought of doing a fictionalized biography of him. Mm-hmm. But then there came a point where I was coming across all these other interesting people who were connected to Pitwick in one way or another. And I, there came a point where I changed course. And instead of the book being just about Seymour, I turned the book into an entire history of the Pickwick Papers. So that was really a major turning point. Yeah. And then when you got this, you know, I was getting all this material. As I said, I wasn't certain how I was going to link it all together. And it was only towards the end I hit upon this device of these two people discussing, uh, you know, the, the origins of Pickwick. Well, you definitely did Pickwick justice because it, it feels like tonally and, and in it, it, its structure going from these, these stories within stories and it feels like an extension of the, the Pickwick mm. universe. 
Well, I'm very glad. Yeah. Well, the um, even, even something like the name, the name Mister in in Bellicott, that sounds like somebody that Pickwick could have run yeah, into. Yeah, I, su- I suppose so. Yeah, yeah. Um, I particularly loved the the Grimaldi uh, cameo. Mm. Um, that that was fascinating. So the the, the could you just give just as a as a as a taster, I guess, that the the real story, and sorry, the real connection with Grimaldi and the Pickwick Papers. Yeah, sure. Um, well, um, Joseph Grimaldi was uh, was a was a hugely famous clown. I mean, people would say that he's the most famous clown who is ever who has ever lived, and he was a remarkable man. Um, but he had a son who was also a clown, but wasn't as successful as the father. Mm. And the son uh, became an alcoholic. And in fact, he basically drank himself to death. And on his deathbed, there was this weird thing where he, he imagined that he was performing again. And uh, he, he actually put on his clown's costume and makeup on his deathbed. Mm. And Dickens uh, got to hear about this. It's right up his street. Pardon? Right up his street. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I mean, Dickens was fascinated by clowns as it was. So he got to hear about this story. And then um, uh, what happened? He he just decided to insert this into the Pickwick Papers without Seymour's consent. Now, in uh, Death of Mr. Pickwick, I, I explore this. And there are reasons for thinking that Seymour might have come up with something which uh, wasn't about an alcoholic clown, but could, but could have been something similar. So Dickens could say, well, you know, I'm not totally going away from, from, what, from what you said. So mm. uh, that's what happened. He, he, he inserts this story into, into Pickwick without, Dick, without Seymour's consent. And this forms the background to this, this huge argument between Dickens and Seymour that I, I portray in, in Death of Mr. Pitwick. And ultimately, this will lead to, sui- to Seymour's suicide. Mm. And, uh, you know, um, what fascinates me is that, you know, Seymour was a, um, you know, he, his role in life as a cartoonist was to make people laugh, but he obviously wasn't a happy man. So in a sense, he was a kind of sad clown himself. Mm. And that, that fascinated me, me as well. Um, and uh, it's, it's actually one of my favourite sections of Death of Mr. Pitwick. I, I enjoyed writing it. Uh, you know, as, as, as I you know, explored how uh, um, Joseph Grimaldi's son basically goes insane and he, he ends up being, uh, being put in a straitjacket. And the idea of a clown in a straitjacket, I think, is, is a, a very powerful uh, image. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, uh, when my, my agent approached publishers, uh, with the idea of Death of Mr. Pitwick, he didn't send them the whole book to begin with. What he did, he sent them two sections. He sent them the opening section and the Grimaldi section as the other section, just oh. to give them a, a taste of what Death of Mr. Pitwick was like. And obviously it worked because they decided to publish it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, there's a, Seymour says at one point that he, he, he uh, rather comes to like some of the politicians that he caricatures is it steve is it um seymour that says that in death of mr pickwick uh yes yeah what was it what how did it feel for you to to conjure with real people and characters that you're that you're uh you've created um well i suppose that the thing you have to do is that you you cannot literally do you know put a real person onto the page you will have to distort them a bit you know, uh, people are sometimes shocked by, you know, by people 
distorting history, but you have to do it, mm-hmm. it because otherwise the thing falls apart. I mean, a simple example, if you have one character writing a letter to another character, you could just stick the letter in the book, but it wouldn't be as dramatic as turning the letter into a scene in which the two talk. Mm. So, you know, you always have to have minor distortions. Mm. And it's a question of how far you take that. Um, I mean, on the question of real characters, a question I'm often asked is, is about the character called Mr. N. Now, this is a part uh, set in modern times. Mm. Mr. N is a person who is so obsessed by the Pitwick Papers that he spends 15 years of his life cataloguing every word in the book. Yeah. And I, I'm often asked, is, is this person based upon someone who, who actually existed? And the answer is yes. Oh, there wow. actually was a person who did this. And I came across a cutting about him in, in the Dickens Museum. I mean, completely forgotten about. And it was like my eyes lit up. I thought, my gosh. That's a, that's, and that's it, a character and in fact, on the page. That is there, my yeah. favourite section of Death of Mr. Pitweed. It doesn't involve Dickens or Seymour. It's this section set in modern times, or not quite modern times, the early 20th century. And, uh, you know, by this man utterly obsessed by Pitwick. And uh, I really enjoyed writing that section. Yeah. R- right at the beginning of the novel, um, Mr. Mr. Imbelica asks, um, how well do you know the immortal work? And then he's disappointed when script, he says, he's read it three or four times, I think. And he said he's, he's waiting for the person who will say, by heart. It sounds like... There mis- were people, there were people. <laughs> uh, there, was, uh, there was an Indian uh, man, uh, sort of a guru, who uh, claimed to know Pickwick by heart. And, wow. you know, he could just reel it off like that. And to a lesser extent, there were certainly people who had memorized passages of, of Pickwick. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, people nowadays just don't realize just how much how important a part Pickwick was in people's lives, mm. but it, it really was. Um, you, you mentioned uh, shocking people. Can, can I ask what kind of responses you've had from, from the Dickensian camp? Well, I don't think they like, they like that from Mr Pickwick. <laughs> no, I can't the, imagine they do. <laughs> the uh, initial response, uh, I was described as a hate-driven conspiracy theorist. <laughs> Really? Well, that should have been uh, on the cover of the book. That's yeah. great. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, it's just not, uh, it's not true. I mean, the, the point is that there are contradictions in what Dickens says. His account of the origin of Pickwick cannot be true. No. So you have to then come up with another account. Yeah. And this is what Death and Mr. Pickwick does. It comes up with another account of the origin of Pickwick, which is plausible and is in keeping with the available evidence. And that's good. So, that's yeah. good. That's that's good history writing. If you if you observe a flaw and then uh, come up with your own theories based on the evidence that exists, not on what you wish existed. Absolutely. And the other thing is that you know history only gives you certain parts of the evidence. Absolutely. You never get all the evidence you want. You just get bits and pieces that history has left behind. Yeah. Uh, but I think it was completely out of order to describe me as a hate-driven conspiracy theorist. But that was the initial response. Um, from and where? It was from, from a Dickensian blog. Oh. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, and there have been some other sort of uh, snide remarks, if I can put it like that. Yeah. And, but uh, the point is that I think Dickensians are, are missing out. Because, uh, you know, um, the Facebook page, uh, I mean, has got literally hundreds or thousands, actually, of posts by myself and others, mm. all exploring all 
that's the Pitwick Papers and Death of Mr. Pitwick. So there's clearly something here that could attract people to Pitwick Papers and then Dickens more generally. Well, the, um, the, the, the upturning of long-held theories is exciting you know absolutely absolutely and it sort of links back to that what, what we were saying in the in the first episode of, of pickwick being a kind of open-ended almost internet of a book um it seems perfectly matched by your your growing uh, online museum of pickwick memorabilia facts and and images that you've that you've collected well that's right I, I'm, the, the facebook page um what i'm doing is I, i'm turning up the facebook posts into in, into flip books, and there are already fourteen volumes of these of these flip books <laughs> online. I mean, hundreds of the. I mean, the, the, the output of the, the Death of Mr. Pickwick Facebook page is a, is approaching a thousand posts a year. Uh, what's the um? What's, what, what's the name of that Facebook page for people who want to go? Well, look if for you it? just put Death of Mr. Pickwick into the Facebook search, uh, yeah. you'll find it. Okay. Um, you know, it's facebook.com slash Death of Mr. Pickwick. And, uh, you know, um, every, there are never less than two posts a day, often more. And, you know, I, I, have, uh, I, I have really hardcore fans. I mean, there, there's, there's a fan of mine called Peter Stadlera, and um, he does things like planning his holidays around death of Mr. Pitwick. <laughs> you know, he goes to places that are mentioned in the novel every day. He does research that mm-hmm. is related to death of Mr. Pitwick. Wow. And this is an enthusiasm that I think Dickensians could tap into. Definitely. And, yeah. uh, you know, to denounce me as a, as a conspiracy theorist, I think is very silly indeed. Well, anyone who reads your book can't... Uh, I mean, I, I don't believe they can walk away thinking it's... it's uh got any hate towards um the pickwick papers it's 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 a it's a letter of love <laughs> i suppose it was really given the amount of time i spent on yeah <laughs> well um i think that's just us just about out of time Stephen. but thank you so much for um for talking to yeah, us yeah thank you seriously well thank you i really enjoyed it thank you very much uh, likewise indeed. well i really hope we can um we can have you back at some point um we did like it too uh will will we hear any more from scripty in the future well, that, <laughs> it's funny you should say that, because <laughs> I'm actually now working on my next novel, and it's going to be another big historical novel. Fantastic. And I'm thinking of bringing back Scripty as the narrator of that. I haven't made a final decision yet, but yeah. I, I think it is heading that, in that direction. Excellent. The, well, the, we'll look forward yeah, to hearing the, more. The Stephen Jarvis Thank literary you. universe. Yeah. <laughs> okay, bye-bye. Thank then. you very much, Stephen. Thank you, Stephen. Bye. Bye now. Bye.